Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Suzanne Simard, an ecologist at the University of British Columbia's Department of Forests and Conservation Sciences, has dedicated her life to mapping the relationships between trees, how they send nutrients to one another, remember the past, warn their neighbors of disease or drought, and support their offspring. Her new memoir, Finding the Mother Tree, tells how her work has unfolded from her first discoveries of mycorrhizal fungi in the wood-wide web to the inheritance left behind by dying trees and the life-giving force of the largest elders. Simard used isotopes and mass spectrometers to quantify the indigenous knowledge that inspired her to study the interconnectedness of forest communities and our human ones. She joins us to discuss what we might all learn from the trees. Thanks so much for talking to me, Suzanne. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. It's good to be here. So how did it all start? How did your, you know, when you were a young sapling, how did um, (laughs) your interest in studying the ecology of saplings begin? You know, I grew up in the forest. I grew up in the old growth forests of British Columbia. They're unique in that they're west of the Rocky Mountains. So there's a lot of rainfall there. And uh, so these are like the iconic old growth forests that you think of when you think of the West Coast of North America. Um, They have huge cedars that can be thousands of years old, hemlocks that are hundreds of years old, spruces that can be 50 meters tall. They're big forests. And my grandfather, my great grandfather, my dad, uncles were horse loggers. And so I grew up um, in that experience. My grandfather made all of his own tools. He made his own houseboats, flumes, and water wheels for electricity. He uh, raised his horses to take them up in the woods. Uh, So it was very dangerous work. And that's how I grew up, is just being among that. I I didn't, it was never really an opportunity for me to think of myself as a horse logger, because I was a girl, but, um, but I definitely loved everything about it. And then eventually, I, I learned that there was this profession called forestry when I went to university. I didn't know about that before, even though I grew up in this, these forests. Um, and forestry was a faculty for men, and uh, it wasn't open to girls. Um, but then the year I got there, they decided to open it up. And so I was one of the first cohorts of girls to go through forestry. And I, yeah, I learned the forest industry at that time was very different than what my I grew up watching with my grandfather. It was industrial forestry, which means clear-cut logging and replacing old-growth forests with plantations. Um, and I saw this as a very, I don't know, I was sad, to be honest. But I also loved that I was able to be there, you know, be a part of it. You know, I, I, it was an honor in, in a lot of ways, just because I was one of the first girls. And so it was very conflicting, you can imagine, Um but yeah, that got me on the journey, though, of how to make things better. How could I make it so that um, there's more than just one-sided viewing of what a forest is, which was really based on how do we exploit them um, and how do we shape them so that they produce more for more economic value? That was that was the mindset, it still is the mindset, and I wanted it to be more holistic. The forest means much more to us than making money on the stock market. It's, it's actually our life support system. And I knew it as that because that's how I grew up. I mean, it, it sounds really difficult to have to do some of the things that you were asked to do in the forestry program and in some of your early research, you know, being ordered to clear cut or 
poison trees. Um, what was that like for you? How did you sort of reconcile it or like get through that period? Yeah, it, well, it, it was really hard, but uh, you know, I just, well, there's so many things that were hard about it. I mean, any field where you're one of the first girls, there's that hard, hard part to it as well in that it really was a man's world and um, to voice an opinion about it was like, just not, that's not going to fly. So, um, so I wanted to, I wanted to stay in it though. I wanted to learn about, I wanted to become a silviculturalist, which is someone who grows trees. And, but I couldn't, cause I, I couldn't get the job. I, I, you know, I was always sort of just the summer student. And so I had to deal with that side of it at the same time, dealing with my own, you know, cognitive dissonance over what I was doing and how I saw the world, which were turning out to be quite different. Um, and so I was just conflicted from the start, but not able to speak out because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the power and I didn't have the credibility. And um, so it was very difficult at first. I had to sort of really twist myself around in order to stick with it. Um, but, the, you know, I met people along the way who did care about the forest in ways that I did as well. And like early on in my mid-20s, and that really propelled me to keep going, you know, to do research in forests and really try to figure out what we were doing wrong. So one of the things that you're rightly very well known for is um, this concept of the wood wide web, which I'm so glad I didn't stumble over saying, <laughs> which is, um, you know, the idea that all of the trees in the forest are connected by this really intricate fungal network um, and, you know, are living in cooperation with each other, which was really radical in 1997 and kind of still is in 2021. When did you first have the inkling that maybe things are not quite as competitive as we've been led to believe? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so in the mid-1980s in Canada, the harvest had been going up and up and up and up, right? And they called it sustainable a sustainable yield, long-run sustained yield. And yet the harvest was going up and up and up because it was not governed by long-run sustained yield or the idea of sustaining a forest. It was about how much can, money can we make from this forest. Um, and so the cut kept going up and up and up as we exploited more and more of the forest. And in the mid-1980s, the Forest Service at the time looked at the land and said, oh my goodness, you know, we haven't actually replanted the forest we cut or not very well. So they enacted something called the free-to-grow policy. That policy said, oh, the problem with these forests is that we've let all these weeds come in and they're competing with our trees. And so therefore we need to get rid of them and then we'll have perfect forests. You know, we'll be able to um, manicure them to the ways that we want them. And what I, what I was seeing is that these native plants were an integral part of the forest, that they, they came in after a harvest or a burn because it's part of natural succession. It's like, you know, you're born as a kid and you go through your teenage years to become an adult. It would be like saying, okay, in a forest, we're going to take away that whole growing up period and just put you into adulthood right away. Right. So you don't actually learn, you know, how to read, write and be a social creature. You just, you suddenly you're an adult. Um, that's basically, you know, I think it's a good analogy. And so these native plants, which are very much part of early succession and healing the land itself, that was all removed. And um, and, I, and I saw this as disconnecting the forest, right? You know, removing alders was, you know, that, that seems like a wrong, you know, to me, a wrong thing to do because they add nitrogen to the soil that's been lost 
due to a fire. And here we were coming along and saying, oh, we don't need those because we don't, we think they're competitors. Um, and so I knew in my heart that this wasn't right, but I, I didn't have the numbers. I didn't have any scientific credibility. All I had was my intuition. And so then I went to graduate school and, uh, in my late twenties. And that's when they said, oh, yes, it really is about competition. And so I studied it. I studied, I did a whole research thesis on competition between alders and pines. And what I found out is, yeah, they do compete, but actually they really facilitate these pines as well. And you don't, they're healthier. They're not as diseased. Um, they grow straighter. There's all kinds of benefits. And so then at that point, I, I remember talking to my master supervisor and saying, you know, I'd really like to know where all that, you know, the nitrogen that the alder is fixing, where does it go? And he says, oh, well, that's, that's probably a PhD thesis. And so then that was that. And I, I left, you know, with my master's degree going, this isn't the whole picture. And, um, and went back to the Forest Service and I said, you know, what we're doing doesn't make sense. And I even, <laughs> I even said, you might as well paint rocks for all the good this is doing. Anyway, that was basically what got me started. And then I did a PhD really tracing where this nitrogen from these alders and birches went and found that a lot of it ended up back in the conifers because they're all linked together by this big web of fungi, the wood wide web, as you say where these mycorrhizas, which are these helper fungi, actually link trees together and that resources can move from one tree to another and that they actually subsidize the needs or fulfill the needs of the whole community by sharing these resources, even while they're competing. Sure, they compete for light, but they're also, you know, redistributing resources to keep the community whole. Yeah, I mean, that idea and that quote about the rocks was not exactly well received, was it? No, <laughs> in 1997. <it> <laughs> so I mean, what was that? You know, you're com- you're a girl in science. You know, then you're a woman in science, and mm-hmm. you're dealing with that prejudice, mm-hmm. passive or active. And then you're mm-hmm. coming in with this wild idea. Mm-hmm. How did you handle it? And how did your peers in the forestry world handle that? Yeah, it's a great question. I look back, at, and and it's still going on, right? So so when I was a grad student, it was like there were two camps. There were the foresters who believed that, you know, anything but a conifer tree is needs to get taken out, you know, get rid of it. And that, you know, that it's all about competition and that forests are structured by competition. And all of our, you know, forestry practices are centered around that idea. When you look at, you know, how we breed trees to grow tall and competitive, we plant trees so they're spaced apart so they don't interfere or compete with each other we weed the plants out around them so that they don't get competed on by these non-native plant or these native plants then we space them so that they're spaced adequately so that our big pumpkins can grow faster and bigger everything that we do is around this idea of competition and so that that camp really won out they won the day in that that's all of our practices are geared that way even clear-cut logging is about reducing the competition Whereas on the other side, you have more of the ecologists who are saying, actually, the picture is way more complex than that, and that these trees actually and plants can facilitate each other. So that was the facilitation camp. And they usually looked in like really stressed situations or, or severe sites, and they would see that plants could actually shelter conifers or provide them with some kind of mulch or share some of the nitrogen they might fix. But these two camps were not converging, right? There's they were not talking to each other. They're actually at war with each other. And so I started my studies right in the middle of that, like this, 
And I was really seeing that the picture was, it included both of them, like competition and collaboration. How was it received? Well, I, it, it felt like running into a brick wall, to be honest, <laughs> um, in that the, the forestry people, the forest service people, the industry was not going to change, right? There's already been this, you know, the philosophy was there. It was written into policies. The practices were developed around it. And, you know, there's a lot of money behind it, right? There's the herbicide companies, there's the weeding companies, there's the nurseries, there's, and to change that whole infrastructure, it wasn't going to just be me that's going to change it, right? They're not going to listen to me, especially a, a girl. <laughs> and, and so it was like r running into a brick wall. And so ultimately what I did in that situation, because I was working for the Forest Service, was to leave the Forest Service and go somewhere else where I could actually pursue my research without being so heavily ostracized. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny because in that way, your life sort of mirrors your work because, you know, you were isolated in that industry in sort of the same way that trees that are dying are isolated. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of ironic, too, because cooperation, your idea is not a new one. You know, even Darwin wrote about it, even though he's held up as the emblem of competition and evolution. Why is that? Why was cooperation forgotten? Why was your work so threatening? Yeah. You know, when Darwin was writing, it was around the time when capitalism was really formulating as an economic philosophy. Capitalism informed his writings. His writings might have informed the ideas around economies and capitalism. And and you're right, you know, he did, he understood the importance of collaboration or cooperation in nature. Um, and he wrote about it, but it never really got traction. Not like his ideas of evolution based on natural selection and survival of the fittest. And then those ideas were just taken as an ideology almost and applied to ecology and and also to how we structure our social systems even in human systems right it's it's like well you know do you have a social safety net do you have you know do you have do you have uh universal health care do you have you know those things actually they're so important our our fundamental understanding of the world our worldview because it gets trans translated and applied in so many profoundly, deeply important ways. And in my field, the field of, of forestry, and I can throw agriculture in there as well, is that, as I said, it's colored, you know, our, our deep faith in competition being the most important supreme interaction in, in nature has led to all these practices that, that really are, are undermining the integrity of our ecosystems, because essentially what it's getting us to do, all these policies and practices, is, is to disconnect our ecosystem and replace it with something that is simpler, less diverse. We know better now, but we've gone through a long period of entrenching this sort of competition-based practice, and it's hard to change when it's so entrenched. Um, but it's killing us, to be honest, you know, forestry is one of the main, or deforestation is one of the main causes of species extinctions in the world. Um, it's one of the main practices that disrupts our hydrologic systems. It's, you know, bad forestry practices are, have feedbacks to climate. Forestry and clear cutting contributes to one quarter of our greenhouse gases. And so it's a dismantling of the integrity of our, e of our ecosystems, this practice that we're, we've embarked upon. Um, but we need to change it if we want to change that trajectory. We do need to um, see it in a, the more holistic way. And, and I often describe, you know, what 
you know, thinking, you know, knowing that agriculture and forestry were really developed in Western science by the males. Uh, women weren't part of that scientific endeavor. And, and it was almost like they were looking at, at the ecosystem with one eye closed. They couldn't see the whole thing. And we need to see the whole thing. Women need to look. All people need to look in, in order to get this more full picture of what's going on. Totally. I mean, I when I was reading your book, I felt like, you know, not every sentence, like we don't have mycorrhiza necessarily, but I felt like the really big, important sentences, you could swap out the word person yeah. for fur or birch, and you could draw basically the same conclusion. I agree. I agree. I think there's lessons in here for diversity in general, right? Like in, in ecology, um, there's been more and more studies that show, you know, as you increase diversity to the natural levels, that the production, productivity and resilience and, and I, I would say creativity of an ecosystem, it climbs and climbs and climbs, like it thrives on diversity. And, you know, I remember when I was in my 20s and 30s studying diversity in forests, we didn't have done those experiments yet. And there was this big debate on saying, oh, well, actually, single species forests are more productive than mixed forests. Well, now we've done better experiments and there's way more studies and it definitely shows that biodiversity is important to productivity. You can say the same thing about our our human communities, right? You know, if you are all like one culture one language, you know, one f world view, those communities aren't nearly as vibrant and uh, innovative and productive as a very diverse community where, you know, everybody is lifted up and has a role to play. We have a much fairer governance. We have more equitable distribution of resources, you know, and, and it's the same thing in forests. Yeah, I mean, you know, we need to protect our elders, too, which I think gets at the, you know, the mother tree, which is mm -hmm. the title in the title of your book and is something we haven't talked about yet. So where does the idea of protecting the wisdom of the forest and the mother tree come from? Yeah, you know, I in my work, you know, I started out with these really simplified systems, trying to reduce it and understand it. And um and finally, after realizing we were only seeing part of it, I thought we need to map what these networks look like in real forests, in wild forests. And so we went in and we mapped what the network looked like. We basically rolled back the forest floor and looked and traced where the linkages went using DNA techniques. Um, and we found that the biggest, oldest trees were the most highly connected individuals. They're the hubs of the forest. And that the fungi connecting to all the others were like the spokes. What emerged was a map that was a biological neural network. It's actually designed like a neural network where you have big hubs and smaller nodes and things are linked together. And you have chemical transmission going on through these linkages like neurotransmitters. In fact, the same chemicals as there are neurotransmitters in our own human brains. Um, and so it turned out that these big old trees, these mother trees, which um, through their connections to other trees and seedlings, they actually nurtured the young seedlings to become vital and become, you know, the next generations. And so we discovered that by going back to these old forests. Well, given all the clear-cutting and monoculture tree planting that's been happening for decades, are there any mother trees left? I live in Canada. I live in Western Canada in British Columbia. We have um, some old-growth forests left, but we haven't got very much. And Right now, there's big fights going on up here where protesters are protesting against the last 3% of the iconic old growth forests because they're slated to be logged. 
And, um, and it's crazy because these old trees store the most carbon. They have genes in their, you know, embedded in their seeds that have seen previous climate fluctuations. You know, they, they're encoded for that variability. And it's those genes that are going to carry us through the next period where our climate is going to be changing quite rapidly. And, and so mm-hmm. it, it's worth the fight to, to save those remain, remnant forests for their ability to store carbon, to have the genes in them to carry us forward, to nurture the young ones come, to come along. And then with the existing forests that have been degraded or have been harvested, we can um, let them grow old, right? We don't have to cut them down when they're, when they're young adults, when they're 50 years old. We can let them grow to live to 500 or 1,000 years old, their natural lifespan. That biodiversity will come back, right? The fungi that that are only associated with old trees, they'll come back. The, the, the lichens that only grow on big old trees or the woodpeckers that only find cavities in big old trees, they will come back or they will, you know, if, as long as those remnant old growth forests are there to seed them in to the, as we recruit old growth forests into the future. Um, so it's not all lost, but it's really, really important to keep fighting for what we do have left and to fight for improving what we have degraded already. You know, in the indigenous people or certain, you know, religious groups view the forest as, or they view all creatures as created equally, that we're, that man does not have dominion over all, but that man is just part of nature, that we're all one together. And um, those worldviews are, you know, those are the most resilient and sustainable worldviews because the, the other views that we have dominion over nature means that we exploit nature. And so it's really important that we, um, that we understand where we sit, <laughs> you know, what is our role here? And we have, we can have a very productive role in this ecosystem. We can nurture those parts of the ecosystem back to health. Uh, we can be very, we, we don't have to be the destructor of nature. We can be the, the, you know, we can be a producer as well. It's really ironic, right? That a lot of indigenous understanding of the world and of ecology and of nature is only now being taken seriously that it's been, you know, backed up by your work, or if we think of like the the human genome project and the gut microbiome, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that we're all connected was seen mm-hmm. as like really woo before, like you right. get laughed out of places for saying that. But now it's like, everybody's getting grants for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, somehow you came full circle. And, and I think what's so incredible about your work, too, especially for someone of your stature today is that cite a lot of your sources for how you got there. You heard Bruce V.A. Miller of the Skokomish Nation talk about a vast underground network of roots and fungi decades ago. And then you used Western scientific tools to, you know, to prove it the way that we're used to and came around to the same conclusions. Mm -hmm. It's really important. I mean, just think about North America, for example. You know, North America was lived in for 14,000 years by many nations, many indigenous nations, whose wisdom came from thousands of years of observations, of looking at the variability in plant life, in the salmon runs, in looking at weather patterns, knowing when to burn, when not to burn the forest or the grassland. You know, they were really, really embedded in the environment because they had to be. Um, They were part of it. They were it. In fact, they didn't even have words for environment because they were all one together. And that is where the solutions lie. And and for, you know, Western science, which has only been developed over the last 
you know, maybe a thousand years and, um, and, and colonization of North America by Europeans has only happened over the last few hundred years. So compare a few hundred years of science, Western science versus thousands of years of indigenous observation of nature where they lived and thrived. And so did the forests and the salmon, they thrived under that stewardship. Um, and then colonialism happened with Western science and we trashed it. Right. So we weren't watching. We weren't observing the variability. We weren't asking the ecosystem, is it time now or should I wait? We just went in and took everything. That's not very scientific. That's exploitation. And so, yeah, we have a lot to learn. But fortunately for Westerners, this body of Indigenous knowledge um, exists and we can learn that too, right? It doesn't mean we go take that knowledge because that is a way of knowing. That's a whole ontology of knowing. And we need to learn that ontology ourselves. And um, instead of just like, you know, rote up application of some system that we think is going to work everywhere. So once we develop our own Indigenous roots, along with our Western scientific tools, which aren't a waste, they are a way of getting and making sense of our world, we can converge these things together and get a deeper understanding. And yes, you know, I'm, I, I feel like my role has been just, I've come in as a, you know, I'm, as a trained young woman who was trained in Western science, stumbled on these amazing things, but then learned all along the way that these are not my discoveries. This is not my land. These are not my trees. This is just part of who we, we are. Um, and so it's very humbling, you know, and, and I just feel like I'm kind of a vessel and I hope that I can help with this convergence of the Western and ind indigenous ways of seeing the world. Do you feel like we're getting closer to seeing that? Because we have your work, which is trickling its way into the culture through the various mycorrhizae into, you know, fiction and other research. We have the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer with Braiding Sweetgrass, a book that braids together Western and Indigenous ecologies. I mean, are you hopeful that things are changing, that we're getting there? I think we have no choice. You know, um, we have mm -hmm. to get there. Um, and we will get there. And we, we are slowly inching in that direction. Um, but we, we really can't stop, right? So you're right, we've put in a few pillars to hang on to, to move forward, and, and it's, it's getting traction. And the reason it's getting traction is that people can see the all around them climate change, for example. They can see, they read about every day the loss of species that, that we should care about, we know about them. We get upset when we hear about the big glaciers calving off on in the Arctic, you know, we're, we feel grief when our forests die in huge swaths. And, you know, I'm 60 years old, but I have two daughters who are 20, 21 and 23. And kids, their lives depend on us making this leap, right? We've got to make it. We, we have no choice. We have to keep for, moving forward and blending these ways of seeing the world. Um, and, um, and I think we will get there. And the fact that people are paying attention right now, they wouldn't, we wouldn't have paid attention 30 years ago without, because climate change wasn't even like on the radar. Now it's like, oh, we're afraid of it and we need to do something. And so now the consciousness has opened up and it's more accepting of these worldviews. But yes, there is a movement and we just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Don't give up until we get there. 
We have links in the show notes to Suzanne Simard's new book, Finding the Mother Tree, as well as a review from our summer 2021 issue of the book by Miranda Weiss. Uh, There's also a link to the Mother Tree Project, which is Simard's ongoing experiment on forest resilience in the face of climate change as well as some previous Smarty Pants episodes, because I just really love talking to people about trees. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm -hmm.